holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, it is not a goodly morning, so... Uh, uh, good... Let's skip over that part of it, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think we should. I think we should. A stormy morning in your part of the world. Well, yeah. It's, um, it's on the way. It's certainly hitting the, the south coast uh, of Ireland right now. And if uh, people don't know what I'm talking about, there's an actual fucking hurricane. Um, mm. coming towards Ireland. It's Hurricane Ophelia. Uh, I'm, I'm tracking it on this amazing uh, weather site. It's called Ventusky.com, and it shows you the wind speeds and the strength of the winds and the cycle, cyclone, blah, 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 all the, all the cool stuff. I'm watching it here, and, um, yeah, it looks like it's going to get pretty bad. Um, and you, I suppose... Uh, we we associate hurricanes with the other side of the Atlantic, and we've seen yeah. the damage that they can do. Um, but we actually have one. It's it's bananas to even think about it. So hopefully um, we'll get this podcast done and dusted and uploaded before the full force of the hurricane winds hit Dublin. But certainly um, people in the south of Ireland are beginning to feel it already. So uh, fingers crossed, everyone stays safe. It's uh, it's quite weird and scary actually to think there's a hurricane. <laughs> Uh, yeah, about to hit Ireland. Surreal. Yeah. Surreal. Hopefully this doesn't become a kind of storm-chasing edition of the podcast where you're kind mm. of running around town with a microphone. I mean, it, it is, you know, you can make light of it, but it is pretty scary too. So it's a fucking hurricane. Everyone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a hurricane in Ireland. I don't know. They did, the, the words just don't seem to go together particularly well. Like you wouldn't, you would never associate them. I mean, rain, sure. Wind, sure. Yeah. Hurricanes, no, nah. not really, not really. But uh, you're 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 going to be safe enough over there, I think. I'm looking at the winds, and it looks looks fairly okay, fairly timid in London at the moment. Twenty mile an hour winds. I'm just mm. looking, and if I go to this uh, fantastic website, just off the uh, the coast of Cork right now, there are winds of 123 miles per hour. So that's pretty... Surfs up. Yeah, surfs up. And apparently there have been some people spotted uh, kite surfing, and amazingly, these uh, people got themselves into trouble, dickheads. I swear to God. (laughs) I never thought. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow, yeah, hurricane. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Let's go out in a fucking hurricane. I suppose it it could be down to people just not taking it seriously or believing that a hurricane could hit Ireland, but but there you go. This is where we are. 
I guess after the weekend, there must be a slight temptation for you to just kneel in the street screaming, take me now at the storm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I have thought about that, actually. One way of just putting an end to our to our yeah. suffering. Um, yeah, God almighty. Uh, Here we are again. Here we are again and again and again and again and again. We've uh, We've seen this film before, James. We have. We have. Or is it a play? I mean, I, I know you tweeted over the weekend, one of our listeners, Rupert Gould, comparing us to a, a Beckettian duo. I mean, his most famous play, Waiting for Godot, two idiots waiting for something that never happens. It feels <laughs> eerily familiar, doesn't it? It really does, actually. Yeah, we should say thank you very much indeed for that review. That's uh, it's really very nice. Um, he's talking about listening to the uh, to the Arscast Extra, and he said, uh, on the way past the Emirates, and I wonder how the ups and downs of the season often seem to mirror the roller coaster of our theatre down the road. The gallows humour all Arsenal fans will recognise, but also the hope, always the hope. Poor deluded fools. And he says, as with most great podcasts, the key is in the chemistry, and Andrew Mangan and James McNicholas are a double act worthy of Beckett. That is high praise indeed, is it not? It is indeed. As Sammy Beckett said, Beckett said nothing happens, nobody comes, nobody goes. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> There's another one here. Uh, let me see if I can find this. I had it a bit earlier on. But uh, I definitely had it. There's kind of too many. It's sort of yeah. uh, It's overwhelming. It is a bit. This is, this is uh, from DOB66 on Twitter, at DOB66. He says, was Beckett anticipating the Arsenal's endless cycle? Ever tried? Ever failed? No matter. Try again. Fail again. <laughs> fail better. And then he puts at the very end of it, fail worse? Um, yeah. yeah. We're finding ways. We're finding ways. We're nothing, you know, we're nothing if not consistent in trying and failing again and again. This, um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not trying sometimes. I mean, it felt like... That could be like the that. issue, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. try a bit harder. I mean, look, I, I'm never, I'm never amazed at our ability to, to find a way to lose a game that we should win. Yeah. It's... Um, we're resourceful. Yeah. Yeah, we know what we know how to do that. We really do know how to do it. So, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's what can you say? I mean, you know, we go away up to the international break with a decent little run behind us. What was it? Six wins from seven. Yeah, we we steadied the ship. I think that was the phrase I probably said about eight times on last week's podcast. And um, uh, you know, it'd be wrong to say that there was a huge amount of optimism among the Arsenal fans, but maybe a little bit of. Peace, quiet, sanity, and now the hurricane has descended and it's, you know, we've gone into a game and it's all just feels like we're back to square one, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's, it's the kind of game that you, you really need to win to consolidate that little run that we were on. You know, you go away, you have the internationals, you come back and... It's a tricky enough away fixture. But, you know, let's not pull up fucking any punches here. Watford are an okay side. They're not anything more than an okay side with a couple of decent players and, and a good collective work rate and spirit and what have you. That, but that's what you expect from a team that's going to be a mid-table team. You know, in the heel of the hunt, they're going to be a mid-table team. Um, so you know what to expect. But you've got to be able to put those games away. You've got to have... I You know, I don't... I, I don't think it's really an issue of quality in terms of quality of players. And you can say, well, you know, if the players were better, they wouldn't make the mistakes or or character is a quality in itself. And I get that. But I think it is. It's it's to do with it's to do with this team's 
I don't want to use the word mental strength or lack of mental strength, but it's to do with the character. And it's not just the, the team, it's the club, it's the character of the club. It's something that we've seen over and over again uh, yeah. in the last few seasons. And, you know, having having spurned chances when they got their equaliser, and we'll discuss the nuts and bolts of it, there was no reaction from Arsenal. There was no, you know, if, if you feel like you've been uh, badly done or wronged, in a game, and I think Arsenal were wronged by the penalty. I think it was a, an obvious dive. The referee fell for it. He gave the penalty. You know, why doesn't that make you angry? Why don't you try and react in a positive way instead of just they're gripped by a, a fear, paralyzed by this fear because they've been through it. They've been through it time and time and time and time and time and time again. And that's the, that is the default reaction to a setback is, oh, fuck, not fuck this. Yeah. You know, it's funny, when you talk about the squad, 10 years ago we were talking about, are there senior players around to hand down kind of the identity and the ethos of the team? And now the senior players in this team are ones handing down an identity of panic and resignation and even the newer players become afflicted with it mm. pretty quickly. I mean, did you see the conversation after the game between uh, Troy Deeney and Martin Keown in the BT Sports Studio? I, I didn't see it because uh, I I just paused the television when the final whistle went and on my screen there was Hector Bellerin walking away. I think I used a picture on today's blog um, where he's sort of pulling his mm. shirt up over his face, but it was the back of Hector Bellerin and you could see his number and the name and I just left the TV on I didn't see the the conversation but uh, I've read the quotes um, what, what did you take from it or what did you think well one thing I was going to say is that the point that you made uh, about you know when the penalty was given there was almost no reaction from Bellerin or from any of his teammates and you know while we're not supposed to say we want to see players haranguing the referee and up in his face, Martin Keogh made the point, if that decision had been given against an Arsenal team with him in it, that the whole team would have been furious and saying to the referee, look, you've got this one wrong. And, uh, you know, I can think of many occasions on which that was the case. I mean, think of that Old Trafford game, for example, when mm. Van Nistelrooy got, um, hit the bar with the penalty. But uh, And he also made the point of, you know, there, there isn't that kind of accountability applied to the team themselves. He said if... If Mesut Ozil had missed a chance like that in one of the Arsenal teams he played in, he would have had to answer to the rest of his teammates. You know, the, he would have had a shout from the midfield or the defence mm. saying, you've got to put those away. Whereas it feels like there's almost a kind of lackadaisical approach among this Arsenal squad where it's like, well, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. You know, the, another chance will come. And yeah. we seem to operate like that and it doesn't pay off. It just I mean accountability's been a big cultural problem at Arsenal for a long time, but I felt like this Watford game kind of provo provided that a microcosmic example of that. Really. Yeah, I mean it's um Yeah, I mean you see what he said. I wrote about it a bit in the blog today. You know, I I can't imagine another team being subject to that kind of criticism from a player or a manager, really. You know, it's one thing for a pundit to say, OK, uh, Arsenal don't have any character, don't have any backbone or cojones, as he said. You know, that you're just saying you, you don't have any balls. And it seems acceptable uh, to say that about Arsenal. I'm not sure that it is. I'm not sure it's the right thing for Troy Deeney to have done. But, you know, you can't argue with the sentiment. It's very difficult to argue with what he said when the evidence of it is right before our eyes. Mm. That that this team and Arsene Wenger's teams for the last number of years have had these issues with mental frailty, fragility, timidity. That they do lack the kind of characters that 
that you need, uh, you know, when, when things go wrong in games, be, you know, being part of being a, a good team is being able to cope with adversity. It's not being brilliant all the time because nobody can be brilliant all the time. It's how you deal with the, 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 the setbacks in a game or in a season that really uh, defines you as a team. And this Arsenal side, as we've seen once more, you know, unless we're like a, a Goldilocks team, aren't we? It's got to be just right. The porridge has got to be fucking just right. Otherwise, mm. w- it doesn't happen for us. You know, you talk about the game at Anfield, the 4-0 uh, before the, the transfer window closed. And what, we couldn't go out and play because there were too many things going on? We were a bit worried about what was happening with Oxlade-Chamberlain, a bit worried about what was going on with Alexis. Are we going to bring anybody else in? Is the manager fully focused? Are the players fully focused? Oh, and we go out and play in a really, really pathetic way. And I think we saw yesterday, yesterday on Saturday, you know, that, that it doesn't take much for these players to give up. That you've got yeah. to be able to, you've got to be able to do it for ninety minutes and injury time, and you've got to stay concentrated and focused. But they they give up, and it costs. You have to, you have to be professional. Yeah. You have to be professional, and and they struggle with some <laughs> some elements of that, and that is that is staggering, really. I mean, I know I know none of this is particularly new, but this is obviously one of. You know, for all our problems, one of the biggest football clubs in the country, in Europe, in the world. And these are athletes who have got to the very, very top of their profession. And yet they just sort of relinquish responsibility at key moments. And that can only be because of a culture of permissiveness where that is allowed and tolerated mm. because and you know you're right what you say people Troy Deeney probably wouldn't say that about a Chelsea or a United or a City partly because it probably wouldn't be as true but also partly because of the backlash because he'd he'd have some sense of well if I do that next they'll come back and go for me you yeah know? exactly next time I play against those teams I'm going to get fucking booted up in the air who's going to do that which Arsenal player is going to do that well, n- nobody, and it's exactly the same as what Troy Deeney's doing on the pitch. You know, he spoke about it. He comes off the bench, first challenge, first aerial ball comes in. He thinks, I'm going to get up and I'm going to win this one at any cost. Mm. And it'll get the crowd behind me and it'll make a psychological impact on the match. Yeah. And he does it and he knows that he can do that. And, uh, and, and even if he does put an elbow in somebody's back, is he confident someone's going to come back and do the same to him? I, yeah. You know. Yeah, I know, what he's, I, you know, I know what he's saying. But at the same time, you know, Troy Deeney didn't say anything about all the aerial challenges. He didn't win when he came sure. on. You know, so there's a bit of fucking blown smoke up his own arse there a bit. But, you know, the, the, the main point, you know, he feels like it's OK to say that about fellow professionals, about Arsenal. And, uh, you know, it is, it is annoying, really. Um, we become this... Again, like I said in the blog, this kind of circus where everything mm. we do is is a meme or it's something to take the piss out of or, you know, we get trolled for this or blah. You know, it just it's beginning to drive me mad. But ultimately, you know, I think it comes down to it comes down to uh, A, the manager and B, the owner and C, the chief executive. I think all three of these men are are culpable to varying degrees for the state of the club and for permitting this club to be run the way it is being run, where players don't feel accountable, where they can slack off, where they can just not try as hard as they should and nothing happens to them. Nothing changes. It's difficult to watch. It's difficult to watch. 
Well, it's it's because it's a question of what are the demands and what are the expectations. You know, Arsenal, we've had this kind of tricky start to the season. Our form's been terrible uh, away from home. But if you look at the league table, we're sat in sixth. And to be honest, that's probably about par for what people would expect at this stage. And that in itself is a scary thought, isn't mm. it? I mean, you know, you can say we're nine points off the top. but I mean, that's an irrelevant number, isn't it? Yeah, we're never going to be up there this year. No, I don't think so. I don't think, you know, that's even worth considering. I mean, it's how you gauge it's how you gauge your, your team, isn't it? How far are you off the top? And certainly that's how we've, you know, looked to gauge Arsenal down the years because what we've expected is a title challenge. What the club have told us is that the top four is a minimum. That's the minimum requirement for this football club. We, we heard that time and time and time again when we were finishing in the top four and people were getting fed up because we weren't challenging for the title. Um, but, you know, we're, we're in a season now where we haven't won away from home. We've played four games away from home, taken one point, and that was at Chelsea where we had to. We, we couldn't do anything other than, uh, than, than play the way we did. We had to re- respond, you know. But in the other three away games, we've lost 4-0 at Liverpool. We lost at Stoke. Uh, despite dominating the game, and we lost at Watford in a game that we should have won and had chances to do so. And, you know, it's not as if we're uh, we're losing the same way. Those are, those are different ways to lose each time, but still we're managing to do it. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just, it's just very difficult to see this team challenging for the top four. It's difficult to see them challenging for the title again in the in the near future. I don't know how that's going to happen. Well, I think I know how it could happen. I think we all know how it could happen, but we, we understand that it probably won't happen because it it needs a new man. It needs it needs something fresh. Because you know what you know what happens is you can keep buying players over and over. Keep buying players every transfer window. Keep recycling your squad. Keep shifting players around. Change formations. But the problems remain the same because they're, they all stem from the same man, from Arsene Wenger. And it's the same coaching staff and the same, you know. So unless you change that, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of players or how much money you spend, you're going to have these same issues. So what it requires is for a new manager to come in, root and branch change. Manager, coaching staff, scouting staff, it's got to happen for something to be uh, fresh and new and different at Arsenal because it, w- it will just keep happening under Arsene Wenger and I think this is why I talk about Kroenke being culpable uh, because he gave him the two-year deal Gazidis being culpable because people say well at least Gazidis wanted change well maybe he did and maybe he is actually powerless but he still picked up three million quid last year and went on uh, a PR exercise, a PR rampage, you might say, when, when Arsene Wenger was given his new deal. He said Arsene Wenger's world-class in every respect. This was the best decision for the football club. And he didn't just say it on Arsenal.com either. He said it to Gary Neville on Sky Sports. You know, it's one thing doing it on the, the, the official website because it's a bit of PR, etc. But, you know, these guys are all part of the problem. And I don't know who's going to change anything. I don't know who's going to change anything either because, like you say, so many of those people at the top don't seem to have huge personal interest in changing. You know, we we know about the owner. Mm. We know he's happy with what's being delivered. The manager, of course, 
uh, doesn't have any cause for for wanting his position to change. Seemingly, uh, no plans on retirement or anything like that. And, and as for Gazidis, if he does want change, he either hasn't got the power or hasn't got the bottle to make it happen. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty bleak. It's a pretty bleak outlook at the moment. I mean, the thing is, how it's it's not very different, is it? To where we were a matter of months ago at the mm. back end of last season. If if you look over what we were saying on these podcasts or on your blogs or, uh, you know, in the last few months of last season, we're all saying we need drastic change. And what happened with winning the cup final and the switch to the back three and the new contract just kind of robbed us of that opportunity. And now we're, we're sort of back sort of roughly where we were. I mean, it's difficult to say if, I don't think we're in any better position than we were before the summer. Hmm. Well, let, look, let's talk a bit about the game then. Um, what did you make of the the uh, the team selection, the the absences of Ramsey and Alexis, supposedly mm. due to training ground injuries? But any thoughts on that, or do you take that as take that at face value? I mean, I think you have to take it at face value, particularly in the case of Ramsey, because he's been a pretty integral member of the team so far this season. But I think the one thing I would say about Alexis and Ozil not starting is I, or not being involved in the case of Alexis, I do wonder if that might have been four months ago. I guess we'll never know um, for sure, but it does feel like their status or their position in Wenger's plans is shifting slightly at the mm. moment. So I, I do wonder if they had this been game in 12 months ago, would Alexis have been pressed back into action? Would Ozil have been afforded the start? I think there was also a slight sense of him wanting to reward Alex Awobi for what he'd done in the, yeah. in the last few weeks and being on a good run of form. And to be honest, I didn't have a massive issue with the starting lineup. I was pleased to see Per Mertzacker in there. I, I didn't necessarily think Arsene Wenger would give him the nod in a Premier League game. I thought that was a sensible choice. Um, Elneny has been all right in recent weeks. Iwobi's been playing well. Welbeck was great before his injury. So, mm. you know, I, I could see the logic in it, definitely. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have any real issues with the team, to be honest. I think it was a team that was capable of scoring goals. Uh, Gomez, Aurelio uh, Gomez was certainly the, the busier of the goalkeepers, it seemed to me, anyway. And I thought, you know, it was a pretty insipid sort of first half. There wasn't a great deal going on, but I thought there were a couple of bright sparks. I thought Iwobi was, was pretty sharp. He was working hard. Mm. Um, and then we, I mean, we got the goal just just before halftime, not long before halftime anyway. A corner, Mertesacker's header, great header, thumping, thumping header. Um, so there was something to like about uh, what happened on Saturday. But, you know, it, it's not unusual for teams after the international break to come back and be a bit slow in the first half of games. But I wasn't expecting Arsenal to be as bad in the second half as we were. Um, nevertheless, nevertheless, I, I think there were chances to, to, if not to win the game, to put us in a more comfortable position. Um, we had two particularly good chances, I think. Uh, when Mesut Ozil came on for the injured Danny Welbeck, again, we don't know quite how long Welbeck's going to be injured for, but I guess it's going to be another three weeks, so probably till after the next international break before we see him again. Um, yeah. Ozil played a lovely ball into Iwobi. Iwobi maybe should have, I think, probably should have scored. It was a good save, though, by Gomez. That was a good save, I yeah. thought. Yeah, I mean, he'd want to do better, maybe lift it, but he didn't do too much wrong in that particular instance, I thought. No, and then there was the Ozil chance, uh, which, again, I, you know, I think he should have scored that. That That's mm. 
that's the moment I think on which the game turned and obviously within seconds they went up the other end and uh, had a dive and the penalty was awarded and as we know when uh, Arsenal face a penalty it's a goal for the opposition yeah in- invariably so and Petr Cech's actually had a pretty decent campaign but that remains a big flaw in his game I mean you can sort of put it anywhere I can't even remember what, what Deeney did he just sort of put his foot through it didn't he and that's all he needs to do hit the target yeah I could go back and have a look at it will I no, if no. you want to inflict that on yourself, but it was a clear dive. I mean, you know, I, my, I do have a, a degree of sympathy with the referee because the players are pretty. Some players are pretty good at conning them in these circumstances. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a dive, and hopefully there will be at least some respective punishment. It doesn't help us out, I guess. In, in no, it doesn't. Here, I'm going to watch it again. Here, let me just have a look. Um, here he is, Troy Deeney, with his big arse and his big mouth stepping up. Um, where does he put it? Checks jumping around. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically just to the left of the goalkeeper. If the keeper had stood still and held his arm out, he would have he would have had a go. I notice Check tends to dive to the right a lot when he's right. when he's facing penalties. Um, but yeah, there you go, one-one, and then we, you know, we still had twenty minutes of the game to go, and and what was I suppose frustrating as well was that just before Watford equalised, Arsene Wenger took Alexandra Lacazette off. Now we did a discussion about this uh, last week or the week before on the podcast about why he always seems to take him off, mm. um, and you know I didn't think there was anything. I think we came to the conclusion there was nothing that sinister about it. He was just maybe easing him into action. But, you know, I'd like to start seeing him uh, get 90 minutes. I'd like to see what he could do against maybe a more tired defence. Um, yeah. I wonder, does it say something about his fitness? But, you know, when you when you need a goal, all of a sudden you need a goal and you've taken your record signing off and a, a clever striker. I didn't think he was was having a great game by any means, but he wasn't uh, he wasn't alone in that and he wasn't particularly bad or anything. I just, you know, it's it's frustrating when one of your attacking options is gone. And then your only other attacking option on the bench really is what? Theo Walcott, who could come on and get you a goal, but like... Pfft. Well, I think there's a bit of an issue there because with uh, Lacazette starting up top and with Danny Welbeck generally actually playing one of the more withdrawn roles, the change that keeps happening is Lacazette for Giroud and Theo Walcott's just not trusted to play as that, as that centre-forward. Now... They're such different strikers that I actually think that's presenting us with a bit of a problem at times. You know, if Welbeck was on the bench, say, and you were withdrawing Lacazette with 20 minutes to go and bringing Mm. Welbeck on, you would still retain a threat on the counter-attack, the speed of someone who can run in behind. You don't have to completely adjust your style partway through the second half to to accommodate that striker. Uh, With Giroud coming on, I feel like at the moment it's just kind of interrupting our flow and actually Lacazette was one of our I mean new signings always get a bit of an easy ride from fans but I thought he was one of our better players on the day I thought he was he was good when he dropped deep he was inventive created a couple of chances and yeah I was I was disappointed to see him come off and we didn't really Giroud didn't really mm. offer much did he we didn't give many of the no. necessary service No it seemed to me like it was a it was a substitution for the sake of making a substitution rather than one where you know, designed really to to change the game. He just wanted to give Giroud some minutes, and maybe felt like in the final twenty minutes he could he could use Giroud. And I can I can kind of understand that. But if we were chasing the game, if we were a goal down, um, 
and you're bringing Giroud on. I get it, but we were we were winning, and we were creating some chances uh, as we we just spoke about. And you know, strikers can find a lot of goals in the last 10, 15 minutes of games when defenders get tired, when the concentration goes a little bit, when the legs get a bit heavy, you know, they can take advantage of that. Particularly someone like Lacazette, who's got really good movement and anticipation in the box where he, you know, you think about the goal that he scored against West Brom, you know, he was the first to react to that kind of a thing. So, you know, I I, I don't think the manager's substitutions were uh, in any way effective uh, Ozil obviously had that chance and he, he created that chance for Iwobi but after that was pretty toothless Giroud didn't have any impact at all and then he was I was screaming for him to get Jack Wilshere on I wanted Jack Wilshere on you know in the last 10-15 minutes because you know it was a game that was there to be won from an Arsenal point of view yeah I know we reacted poorly and we were hanging on a bit, but I think, you know, be a bit proactive and try and change the dynamic of a game. Bring Wilshire on. And then uh, he was about to do that and Koscielny got an injury. So he changed uh, his mind and brought Rob Holding on. And you're thinking, well, hang on a minute. Why couldn't you still bring Wilshire on and just go to a back four? You know, he could have had Mertesacker and Monreal at centre half. Kolasinac and... uh, uh, and Bellerin at, at fullbacks. You put the extra body in midfield, and Wilshire's got that bit of craft and creativity that could that could help get you a goal. So I thought his substitutions were poor, and they came back to bite us in the arse. Yeah, and I mean the final goal. I mean, the, you know, there was a few ricochets all over the place, and cleverly sticks it in the net. I, I, I there was something. Inevitable about it, you know. You could feel it coming because Arsenal players, Arsenal's players in that last few minutes, and I don't know if it's down to the international break or down to psychological factors, they just seemed sapped of energy, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the when you look at the uh, the winning goal again, I mean, Mertesacker was pretty exhausted because his first Premier League start. Um, there was a moment about 85 minutes where the camera, the ball was out of play or someone was making a change or something and he was standing there, you know, the classic uh, hands on the knees, I'm exhausted, mm. trying to get my breath back kind of a thing. But if you look at the way the the goal came about, you know, Giroud is in the right back position. That's the kind of uh, position we put ourselves in because of the way that we played, the way that we invited pressure, because of how afraid we were. I mean, Watford dominated those last 20 minutes. Um, and the ball ricocheting around, we, we made clearances, we didn't win the second balls, we didn't get to the second ball. When we did get it, we, we lost it again. There was a moment, I think, when Ozil let the ball bounce off his foot. Um, and then, of course, there was the, the acres of space that Tom Cleverley was in to score the winning goal um, when it was clear and obvious to especially Granit Xhaka people have pointed at other players not doing their uh, best to get back and that's a fair point but Xhaka was the closest man he was watching he stood watching as cleverly uh, waited for the or anticipated the ball coming to him when it did come to him he made no mistake because he was you know why would you from there it's it's harder to miss but that, is, that was goes back to what we are talking about doesn't it about just not trying or not doing the basics. Yeah. There was an incident just before that, actually, I remember, where I think it was a Deeney knockdown. A long ball up from Watford, he knocked it down, and Watford had, I think, 
cleverly and Decore, two midfield runners, the wrong side of Shaka and El Nenny, you know, uh, in between them and our back three. And they were just completely untracked. They had just run past the midfield without being followed. Uh, and it, it was a similar kind of thing to what we saw with the, equal, uh, with the winning goal, rather. Shaka just stood on the edge of the box and sort of let it unfold. And, you know, you can say, oh, well, he's got... 10 yards to make up there. How can he do it? Well, he does it by following in. He does it by tracking his man. He does mm. it by being switched on. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to forgive and understand that. I think the only thing you can say is that it's not an individual problem. It is a collective problem. There are so many players making these kinds of errors. I mean, errors is maybe the wrong word, just like a sort of lack of application. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what you put that down to, and I guess it does come back to that thing of, well, what are the consequences going to be for it? Is he going to be out of the team next week? Is the manager going to come down on him? Are his teammates going to round on him? Probably not. You don't necessarily think they will. You think they'll just shrug their shoulders like they did when the penalty was awarded. Because mm, this is what it is. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is how we do it. And nobody seems capable or willing to, to change it. You know, it's... Um... Yeah, I mean... It is interesting, isn't it? I, I get no pleasure out of doing this, but if you think about the nature of uh, a team like Tottenham, right? So uh, only a few years ago, they were absolutely like the, the prime attraction of the Premier League circus. You know, they were kind of the, the lion tamers, if you will, the, the, the clowns, the, the, yeah. the top star attraction. They, they could mess anything up. They were kind of hysterical in that capacity. And while obviously they retain a bit of that, they're still Spurs. With a, a, a coach with quite radical ideas and a, a fundamentally a new approach to things, they have managed to, an extent, transform that perception. Your idea of what a Spurs team looks like has changed quite dramatically in about three years. Whereas ours... I mean, if anything, uh, it's embarrassing to say, but we are now taking that mantle, aren't we, as the kind of the neutrals' funniest team to observe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, I, it's not fun to say, but we we are becoming uh, the joke of the Premier League, really. Yeah, yeah, because you know, if you kept, uh, it is a bit like sideshow Bob and the Rakes. I know we had this the other week, but of course, like, yeah, it's what it is. But as long as you keep stepping on the rakes, you're going to get hit in the face with the handle. And we continue to, to step on the rakes. You know? Um, yeah, I don't... I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what more to say about that team, that performance. Um, I mean, is it not a curious thing that for, for all these problems... I know the league table doesn't mean much, but we are on the same amount of points as Chelsea and Liverpool. Like, mm. if our aim this season is to get back into the top four, given that it's kind of Watford who are keeping us out of it at present, it is not the sort of one slice of optimism that, for all for all our issues, that, that door is still kind of open? Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, yeah, it's still early days. There's only eight games gone. A lot can happen. There are so many points to play for, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think it's, it's it becomes hard more hard, harder and harder even, to cling on to that bit of optimism, right? It becomes harder to do that the more things like this keep happening. Because you, you can only hear, we've got to learn from this. We've got to put it right. 
We've got to work harder on the training ground. We've got to, you know, reassess. We've got to, you know, all those learning lessons things that we hear. When it becomes obvious after a period of time that the lessons do not get learned or they only are learned for a short period of time and then they become unlearned again because you can only see it happening. Like I was I was cautiously optimistic going into this game because of the run that we've been on. And I thought, you know, we have we have um, consolidated. We'd had four, five clean sheets, I think, something like that. You're thinking, okay. They've, they are, they're slowly, slowly going in the right direction. It takes a lot more to convince us that we're going in the right direction the way we want to go, but win against Watford and you've got another win under your belts. You move into the top four, you go ahead of Chelsea, who just lost at Crystal Palace, go into the European game, get, get more minutes for those guys who are sort of on the fringes, you know, get them more involved uh, and maybe get a good win against Red Star Belgrade. Then you come back and who is it next week? It's Everton next week. An Everton team who've been dreadful really this season. And if you've got a bit of momentum going into that game, maybe you can you can do something about the poor record that you've got against Everton, Ronald Koeman, et cetera, et cetera. You know, then you've, you know, you, you've really started to establish yourself a bit of rhythm uh, and then they just fuck it up. And you're back to square one. You stumble again and you've got to pick yourself back up and you've got to get yourself going again and you've got to learn the lessons and you've got to, you know. Mm. So I don't know what my conclusion is other than to wonder, are we all just fucking mad to, yeah. to, to try and make any sense out of something that we've probably made sense out of before and we'll, you know... It's just so familiar. It's just so familiar, all of it. Well, do we have to... Do we have to accept that this is... Kind, I mean, accepting things is a dangerous game, but do we have to accept that this is kind of where we are, that this is an Arsenal team who, over the course of this season, will lose games, that every decent run will be punctuated by a disappointing or sometimes even stupid result because we are not a team of the calibre, a club right now of the calibre, to put together something more substantial than that. Yeah. I, I think we do, probably for our own peace of mind, that yeah. maybe the maybe the benchmark for what we expect has got to be lowered. And if you lower your expectations, then then maybe it becomes easier to deal with. I mean, I think the thing that struck me over the course of the weekend and, uh, you know, from comments on the site, from reading what people have got to say on Twitter, is just that they're, they're so bored. They're so bored of it all because, because of the familiarity, because they've seen it before, because we've lost that game countless times before, because we've done exactly what we did against Watford over and over again that people are just bored. That was what I've seen people say so much on social media, on Twitter, on the site, in emails. They're just bored of it. And you couldn't blame them, really. Yeah. No, that's it. And people go, you know, football's about more than trophies. And actually, I think I think what you're seeing at Arsenal is that is that borne out because we have won some mm. trophies. We have won some trophies, but we don't believe in the journey anymore. We don't believe in where we're going. We don't believe in the broader project. Yeah. And actually, that those fleeting successes don't mean that much when there's not 
sort of a, a light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. particularly. Yeah, I don't want to downplay those because I, mean, I think that, you know, you can't on one hand demand success and then downplay the, the achievement of winning trophies. But, you know, I think what it comes down to is the expectation levels that people have and, you know, a club that says they want to challenge for the biggest prizes in football yet manifestly refuse to do what you need to do to make that happen, you can't take them seriously. Because they talk a good game, but ultimately they just don't deliver on what they say. As a football club, that's the manager, that's the chief executive, the owner. Well, he doesn't say fuck all, really, but, you know. Um, well, the, yeah. the, the fans are the last kind of element of the club with a, a title-winning mentality yeah. <laughs> and aspiration. We we still look at, at this team like they should be winning the league and pressing on to win the Champions League. But almost no other facet of the club is mm. set up to operate in that way. And the dangerous thing is that you and I are talking now saying, well, maybe we have to adjust our expectations. Maybe we have to accept this kind of top six mid-table mentality in order to make what we're watching more palatable. And yeah. if that happens, then where are we then? Mm. All right. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take a break. Uh, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll come back and we'll take your questions and more in part two right after this. This is John Grills from the Creepy Podcast. With Best Christmas Ever on AMC+, Plus, every day feels like Christmas morning. From new holiday favorites like Elf and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to modern iconic family classics like The Polar Express and The Year Without a Santa Claus, you can spend the holiday season opening only the good stuff. Plus, you get a stocking stuffed with highly acclaimed AMC series like The Walking Dead and Mad Men. New series like Gangs of London and The Walking Dead World Beyond. And you're also getting your favorite iconic Christmas movies without having to search. AMC Plus is available on all your devices. Sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Topical one to start with, James. Uh, which Arsenal player, past or present, would be the most appropriate to name a hurricane after? Asks Dean Van Ungoyen. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Dean. Um, so, yeah, given the, uh, the uh, approaching hurricane in Ireland, which is, it is getting closer... Uh, who, who would you name a, a hurricane after? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see the, the damage that Hurricane Abue would wreak. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I don't know. Uh, does anyone jump out for you? Um, hurricane Merson, a load of, uh, a load of hot air or <laughs> whatever. Something nice. to do with the wind that he talks with. Yeah. I guess <laughs> Hurricane Abu. Hurricane Abu. Mercer would work actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a few. There's a few who seem pretty destructive right now. Um, but yeah, Hurricane Mercer would be. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that one. A whole lot of hot air, not much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, what about? Okay, I've got a really long question. Okay. Uh, it's from Charlie Lairs, who is uh, from Toronto, living in Bogota, and a lifelong gooner. Okay. He says, my, my question is this. Brace yourselves. Okay. Uh, Arsene Wenger seems to invoke the importance of the club's values more and more as the pressure builds for him to go, whether it be during disastrous transfer windows or the same repetitive failed campaigns in the Premier League. However, does Arsenal really have any distinct values anymore? Or is this just a smokescreen by Wenger to deflect criticism and pretend to assume the moral high ground? I guess what I want to know is, what are these values that Arsene seems to think he's instilled in the club? Is it timidity and parsimony in the transfer market? Players with no backbone instead of born winners who might rock the boat? Financial sustainability and subpar results over deficit-driven success? Loyalty to failed players, incompetent executives and an underachieving manager and coaching staff season after season? To be honest, at this point, when he evokes the club's values, is it because someone is questioning his job performance and he's looking for shelter in this conceptual morass? What are Arsenal's values at this point in time? And how do they differ from other elite clubs in England and Europe? <laughs> Fucking hell. Uh, <laughs> that's a question and a half, isn't it? I mean, what can I add yeah. to that, really? Um, you know, I, I think uh, if you talk about Arsenal's values... What could we say? You know, trying to give young players a chance, try and play mm. nice attacking football. Um, and that's kind of it. Uh, trying to do things the right way, like a sense of, you know, that kind of old marble halls etiquette, that kind of class about the way we do handle, I don't know, historically our, yeah, our maybe, transfer business. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, there, I, I think there is a there is a... I mean, I think we try and think of Arsenal as an institution that will do things the right way. And I think they do many great things. You know, as a football club, you look at the work that they do in the community and they try and be inclusive, um, you know, with, with the outlook uh, to fans from all over the world, um, you know, respectful of people's sexualities, their religions, their beliefs or no beliefs, whatever they might be, you know, to try and, and be inclusive as a football club. I think that, you know, those are values that we can get behind. But, but those are the values of an institution and those are just values that people should share anyway because it's the right thing to do no it's not mm. a, a uniquely arsenal thing to to say um you know welcome on in everybody you get that down every house in ireland they welcome you in and give you a cup of tea but you know th that doesn't make it a, a unique thing for for arsenal so i don't I don't know. You know, you used to be able to pinpoint a style of football. This is the Arsenal way of playing. Uh, you know, under Wenger's best teams, that was something I think that we could cling on to. But yeah, it's it's a very good question. I mean, if 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 Arsenal are a football club whose first and foremost value is that it wants to be a successful one, I think we could say that they're not they're not succeeding in that regard that I don't think the, the values of the club are so set in stone that we make decisions for the benefit of the football club above everything else. Yeah. It, it is a troubling thing, isn't it? That Arsene Wenger, who spent two decades creating <clears throat> these values and this identity, it, they do seem to be eroding somewhat at the end of his tenure mm. uh, particularly that one about attractive football I do feel like that one is you know that is a crown that we wore in the Premier League for some time the, the team to watch you know the, yeah. the easiest on the eye the most attractive the most fun to watch 
And I just don't think that, you know, when you look at Manchester City, the way they uh, are taking teams apart at the moment, we, we can't rival that. You know, I can't remember the last time we battered somebody like that, you know. Mm. It's um, it's tricky. And, and I guess as a fan, it does leave you thinking, well, you know, what is what exactly am I backing here? What exactly am I... What am I proud of mm. at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, I think the, the the playing style thing is one that has, over the past maybe two or three seasons, become, I think, the biggest issue, you know, because I, I don't know that the manager quite knows what he wants anymore from his team and the way that they play. People say, well, you know, without Cazorla, we're, we're lacking this, or without this player, or since that player left. But, you know, we've brought in big, big players, spent big money, to try and fix all these things and more and more I feel like I, I know less about the way that the team is playing football. It's, it's just hard to know. I mean, what is our footballing style anymore? What well, way it. do and, we want to play? Yeah, I couldn't describe it to you. Yeah. I couldn't describe it to you. If you said to me, describe Arsenal's style, what is their plan? Mm. How do they play? I could not tell you. And, and I, you know, you can blame it on the absence of Cazorla, but the great teams, and let's not forget, Arsenal have produced some great teams in the past. They had a style that was bigger than any player and they had better players than we have now. Mm. But I remember seeing, you know, on Arsenal of 04, playing without someone of the magnitude of Patrick Vieira and seeing people like Ray Parler and Edu slot into that system. And because there was a clear approach, it worked. Mm. You know, it could still survive that. And... Arsenal now, yeah, we, you know, the fact that it all hinges on one Cazorla, it's like, well, whose style is it? Is it Arsenal's style or is it Cazorla's style? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there, there, there's no identity. There's no, and that's Arsenal's strength. That's what's always been his strength. His strength hasn't been to individually prepare players for every scenario. His strength has been to create a team philosophy that players can rotate in and out of, that they can move positions on the field. And it's overarching. And it's uh, it's something that they all subscribe to. Yeah. And he has lost that knack. He has lost that knack. He, has, he does not seem able to apply that to the current squad and create a buy-in from them. Yeah. Uh, well, here's a, here's and, a and question. That, yeah, sorry. Go on. Uh, there's no, a question here from Nat- Natalie Grover, who's at Natalie Grover, who says, are we ever going to emerge from our perennial existential crisis? Is this deep-rooted malaise fixable with a new manager? I think, well, it has to be. It has to be because that's the only, <laughs> that's the only real solution I can see. I would love to say that a new owner would be part of that, but I'm realistic about how plausible that is. I think it, it is fixable, but it will take a lot of time. It will take a manager, you know, he might be able to impose a, a new playing style upon the current squad, but it might take a lot of churn in the squad too. I suppose the one comfort is that maybe we are entering a period of churn. You know, we are entering a period of transition where our big players are going to leave. And if, if somebody new were to, were to come in, they would have a chance to stamp their identity on the squad. But yeah, it, it, it might not be easy. But it has to it has to it has to be given a chance mm. sooner or later. Yeah. Sooner or later. I mean, are you confident that a new man could change things? 
Yeah, I think you have to hang on to that. You have to think that somebody... You have to, don't you? Yeah, you have to, of course. I mean, I I, I do have huge worries, and I know I've expressed them on this episode and previous episodes, that the way that the the club is run and and set up, um, you know, I, I feel like we miss a lot of football knowledge at board level. So I worry about who we will appoint. I worry about how much that manager will be backed. Um, but you've got to cling on to the hope that a new man could come in and do something different um, and turn things around. It might take some time or it might take a second manager. It might not be the first guy we bring in. It might be the guy after that or it might be the guy after that. But there has to yeah. be... You see who's gonna who's gonna say who is gonna say James? This is what we want Arsenal to be. This this is the aim. This is the ambition we have for the football club. We want to do this, this, and this. Now, how do we get there? What do we have to put in place to make that happen? Who is gonna say that? Is it gonna be Stan Kroenke? I don't think so. I don't think he gives a fuck what Arsenal is as long as the the value of his investment continues to rise. It's propped up by TV money. I don't. I just don't, I don't know, know who yeah. that's going to be. Yeah. Is it Ivan Gazidis? Is Ivan Gazidis going to say, you know, if if Arsene Wenger is fired, are the you know are the shackles off? Will Ivan Gazidis become the you know the buccaneering chief executive uh, he wants to be, or we don't want him to be? Is he going to put in place a five year plan to to bring Arsenal back? Yeah, I mean, you know, I want a new manager. I definitely want a new manager, but I don't have an awful lot of faith in the other people at this football club right now to make the decisions that will get Arsenal back to where we want them to be. I wonder, James, if we've been through what will be looked back on as a a kind of a golden era uh, and I know you could point to the second half of Wenger's reign, but, you know, the first half where we won titles, we won doubles, where those expectations were set and those standards were set, I wonder if we're going to reach those again for any sustained period without a period where it it just we don't even get close. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. I mean... You know, I don't think it, it, it could get worse before it gets better. But I do wonder if, kind of, for a supporter experience, the novelty of something fresh and something different, and a sense of well, we don't know how this journey ends, might make it a, a kind of a more engaging experience, nonetheless. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, think about the Europa League this season, which is the 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 thing that I've enjoyed most. I know we've only played yeah. a couple of games, but they've both been enjoyable games just because they're different, because it's something different. We haven't seen it before. It's not where we want to be, but yeah, look, I think just from the point of view of of, uh, of having a different experience of Arsenal, a new manager is the first step. It has to be the first step. And then we see what happens after that. We see how these people run this football club, maybe... You know, there's the danger that in some ways as as tedious and familiar and repetitive as it has been under Arsene Wenger, that there's a, a possibility that he could be the glue that holds a lot of things together. And without him, it could get worse. So it might get worse before it gets better, but I think just different 
uh, is a point where a lot of people are. They want to see something different. They want to just experience something different. Look at the empty seats. You go to the games. You see yeah, the empty sure. seats. That just tells you. Yeah. Um, well, look, talking of a new man, a new manager, there's been a lot of questions in the last few weeks about this, so I thought I, I should pose you one eventually. Uh, Magnus Holmberg tweeted in saying, if you were given the full power of Kroenke for 24 hours, would you try to recruit Ancelotti and move Wenger upstairs? Well, no, I wouldn't move. I wouldn't move Wenger upstairs. Um, for one, for one, Ancelotti, maybe, maybe. I think he is a, a similar kind of a man to Arsene Wenger, isn't he? He's a you know a nice guy. He's not going to put the players under a huge amount of pressure. Um, there was a very interesting bit, actually, I heard recently. It was on Second Captains, the Second Captains podcast. I think it was Ken Early talking about it, about how Ancelotti is the perfect manager to come in to a club that has just been managed by Jose Mourinho. Because Mourinho uh, yeah. is such, an, such a, a horrendous person and is like a... He's destructive in his way, you know, that the relationships with players break down, that they then need somebody like Ancelotti, who's, you know, a good man, a good manager, a good tactician, um, but is not going to demand from them what Mourinho did. Or, um, so he, I think he he might be the wrong person to come in and take over from Arsene Wenger. I, it feels to me like Arsenal need need a manager who's a bit more like... I'm not going to say George Graham, but just that kind of a character, somebody who will be ruthless, somebody who won't let them away with the excesses, that they need a bit more of a disciplinarian, which Wenger isn't. Wenger is a, you know, he's uh, he lets them, or, or treats these guys like adults, like grown-ups, like humans. He lets them make mistakes. He lets them learn from those mistakes rather than sort of, you know, making them do a hundred lines and correcting the mistakes. So they never, you know, they're, they're afraid to ever do it again. You know, um, I mean, it was like we talked about Abue, but, you know, you remember Abue's histrionics and, and diving and, uh, you know, people, I remember hearing stories that, you know, coaching staff would be uh, begging Wenger to talk to him about it. And he never did. Coaching staff would say things to him, but Wenger never said it to him because, you know, he'll learn from it eventually. Um, so he's, he's, I think the squad's in a position where it needs somebody with a bit of strength, a real someone with real character to come in and uh, and turn things around. So, uh, Ancelotti's an intriguing one. I mean, I there was a time where I thought he was kind of a, a safe pair of hands, you know, to maybe succeed Arsene Wenger, that he was kind of a, a, a good bet for that kind of transitional period. Yeah. Right now, I feel like what Arsenal miss so much is rigorous coaching. And, I, and I'm not sure Ancelotti is... A coach. However, what I will say about him, as opposed to Arsene Wenger, is he has shown in the past a willingness to work with other people and absorb other people's ideas. You know, a manager who can kind of cope with the transfer interference he underwent at Chelsea uh, relatively well. You know, since mm. that he would be happy to work with, let's say, a sporting director, let's say, a Marco Mars figure or, or someone similar. He he's always had assistants who have had good pedigree. I mean, uh, Paul Clement, who's gone on to be a, a decent Premier League coach in his own right, you know, he, he thrived under Ancelotti and Ancelotti was open to other people's ideas in that respect. So as a figurehead, 
as someone with the authority to kind of uh, operate um, as an umbrella over over people with more specialist skills, maybe yeah. he could be an option. Maybe he could be an option. Maybe. And then, you know, you see people talking. I'm sure there are questions about Marco Silva. Is he the guy, you know? Um, yeah. It's so hard to, to say because you, we've seen managers come into the Premier League and do well and look good for a short period of time. But it becomes more difficult to produce that on a, on a consistent basis. But if you go back over the last number of years and you look at the coaches that are out there that we could probably have attracted... Um, you know, Guardiola in particular, I think, would have liked Arsenal um, and would have suited mm. Arsenal very, very well. Uh, just in terms of, particularly, you know, in the last few years where we were coming off the back of that Barcelona-esque tiki-taka, tippy-tappy style football that he could have come in and refined. You know, I think he's a he's a, a one that we've really missed out on. But uh, yeah, I don't know who it is. I don't know who it is. It's difficult, even with all the, the best knowledge in the world. You know, there's there's certainly no consensus among Arsenal fans. And you do wonder, again, I go back and I wonder what the fuck the, the people who have to make the decisions are going to come up with as and when that time comes. I'll tell you what, I've got a, a question that yeah. I haven't necessarily seen asked that I wanted to ask you, which is that, in spite of the two-year contract signed in the summer, do you have any sense that we might be watching Arsene Wenger's last season as Arsenal manager? I think if we keep losing games, then maybe. Maybe. Because the pressure will mount. Because, you know, ultimately the, the, the reason people are unhappy is because we're not reaching the standards that Wenger himself set. And let, let's make no mistake, they were uh, very, very high. He did amazing things. But he himself is not able to reproduce what he was able to produce before. And some of it is because uh, I think he's... he's uh, I think everyone's got a shelf life. Whatever their job, whatever their work, they've got a shelf life. And I think his is expiring. Um, I have no doubt that he works hard and works even harder to try and uh, recapture what he did in the past. But if we if we keep losing games, his position is going to become untenable. If we see players slack off the way they did at Anfield, the way they did at Watford, you know, the pressure will become too much. It will become too much. So it's... It, it's it's possible. I think if we right ourselves and continue down the road and go on a cup run and continue to do well in the Europa League, then I think we'll we'll carry on. But at the moment, like I don't feel like the club have got any plan to make a change. But what happens on the pitch might force them into it. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I just it's it's just something I was thinking about over the weekend. You know talk of Overmars coming in for next season and Arsene Wenger's resistance to working with someone in that capacity in the past mm. and, and you know the, the the natural changeover in players that's going to occur if Ozil and Sanchez go I just wondered if um, maybe some lessons might have been learned from what happened with allowing Arsene Wenger to run into the final year of his contract in the past and if maybe the two year deal might be a buffer uh, and a bit of a bluff but yeah. Maybe that's wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, here's a question from Matthew Celentano, I think, who's at Matt Selly. And he says, what should we do about Xhaka? I like him, but it's clear that his flaws are outweighing his strengths. Drop him for Jack? 
Yes, Jack or Jack. Uh, I'm really disappointed in Granite Xhaka this season. I have to be honest, because last season I saw some really good performances, I thought, and I felt very encouraged and full of optimism for what he would produce this year. And I think, on balance, he has been well below the standards I expected. And when when he's out of form, those flaws do outweigh the positive. I mean, I know he created a goal yesterday, and it was a brilliant delivery. Well, it was and a corner. A it, was, it was a corner. Yeah, but it was a good corner. Yeah, it was a good corner, but, like, it's a corner. You know, sure. it's, it's it's hit and hope kind of, isn't it? And you're, you know, it's a good delivery, but you're dependent on someone else doing something or, or you know, Watford doing something stupid, like asking Tom Cleverly to mark uh, Per Mertesacker. So, you know, I, I, it's an assist, taking nothing away from it, but, you know, it's a corner. That's all. Yeah. Well, that was all part of Tom Cleverly's evil plan to make mm. us look stupid. Um, but, yeah, I, and there were a couple of eye-catching passes, but they were... They were relatively anomalous during that performance and, and some of his flaws, you know, the big turning circle, the one-footedness, did stand out. I mean, if you're looking for a two-footed player, Jack Wilshire's not going to solve that problem for you. No. But, uh, yeah, I, I can see why Shaka is a cause for concern and we spoke about, obviously, his reaction on the, the winning goal. I know, you, I mean, last season you were a big sort of proponent of Shaka. you're a big fan of his. Are you revising that opinion at all at this stage? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think he's been really poor yeah. this season. You know, I, I I, thought last season he was subject to criticism that was over the top. And I thought he, he brought something to the team that we lacked. Um, you know, the disciplinary issues were, were something, but I thought in general he was a, a tidy footballer, passed the ball well, gave us a bit of an ec- uh, extra passing range from midfield, but he's he's all over the place this season. I don't know what's wrong with him. Uh, his passing is poor. Like, he seems to have moments where he'll drill a ball out of play at least once mm-hmm. a game. Um, the mistakes that he made at the start of the season were were punished very harshly with goals. Uh, you know, you, you think back to the, the game against Leicester and the game against, was it was it against Stoke? Uh, there was one against uh, yeah, Liverpool as well. You Liverpool. know, so he, he has been poor. There's no point beating around the bush. Even if you like a player, you can admit that his form has been poor. And I think you're right in the sense that when he is playing poorly, the flaws in his game become much more obvious or certainly less easy to defend. But yeah, I think... I think he, he he needs a spell out of the team. Simple as that. I think he needs yeah. to sit his arse on the bench and just think about what's going on and maybe uh, consider his his uh, his application at times because you go back to the to the winner at Watford that Watford scored and I think he was dreadful. He he's culpable there. there he's not alone, but you know he was a big part of that goal being scored. Um. Who else do we have to bring in? I think Wilshire. Why not? Why the hell not give Wilshire a go? I don't know. You know, I I don't know what else to suggest. You know, is it Coquelin? Do we go back to four at the back and put three in midfield? I I feel like probably we should, to be honest. Um, Just in terms of the, the squad that we've got, I think we will be better with an extra body in midfield than at center half. And maybe you can bring Wilshire in alongside Ramsey and Coquelin. You know, it's not ideal, but at least you could see how those three things could fit together. Xhaka could fit in there as well. Elneny could fit in there as well. But 
Well, is that is that the thing with Wilshire? I mean, he was t- he was terrific in that Europa League game, but it was in a a more advanced role. I mean, do you see him as an option for one of the two deeper players? Like, could you play a Wilshire with a Ramsey? We've seen Arsene Wenger try and do that in the past, haven't we? And it's never really quite clicked the way that he wanted it to. Um, yeah, again, I just don't know what way we're going to approach our games or what we're trying to do. You know, because if we knew what we were trying to do, it might be easier to find a system that would work. But we don't quite know what we were trying to do beyond the very basic, which is win a game of football and score some goals. Are we trying to make ourselves more defensively secure? Not sure. Are we trying to play counter-attacking football? Not sure. Are we trying to set up a team that will dominate possession? Not sure. I just don't know what we're trying to do, so it's very difficult to figure out a way to try and do whatever that is, because I don't know what it is. None of the other options are particularly hugely inspiring, but I do think that Shaka sort of needs to be dropped almost to just, you know, help uh, help deal with this problem of... Uh, a lack of culpability, a lack of responsibility for, for your performances, you know. I think he's been poor and there need to be consequences for that. Mm. Um, even if it is Francis Cockland <laughs> who comes in. Well, so uh, staying on this one, let me give, give you a question here. This is from Ben H, who's at GunnerBen07, and he says, should we be concerned that we've had no goals from central midfield since Ramsey on the opening day? Hmm... Maybe. I mean, it struck me that, you know, Mohamed El Nenny went close with a shot against Watford and the commentator said, oh, he scored only the one goal for Arsenal mm. in the new Camp. That was very early on in his Arsenal day. So he's not really someone you can rely on to do that. Shaka, yeah, he's got a decent shot from range, but how many of those will actually find the top corner? Only, only a few. Um, Ramsey's the guy. Ramsey, uh, Cockland's never scored for Arsenal. No. <laughs> um, Jack's never been prolific. You know, Santi, a lot of his goals came from dead dead balls, didn't they? Penalties. I mean, he, he struggled from open play for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all on Ramsey, really. It's all on Ramsey. And, yeah, maybe that is a bit of an issue. I mean, th- th- we've, we, we've been very reliant for a long time on Alexis Sanchez to score us goals and then the centre-forward, <clears throat> whether that be Olivier Giroud or Alexandre Lacazette. It would be lovely to think that would be spread around a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure, apart from Ramsey, we have a player who's ever going to do that. I'm not sure we have a, a, goal, a natural midfield goal scorer apart from Ramsey. A sort of a Lampard-style player, somebody who can get you 10, 15, maybe 20 goals a season. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Ramsey, Ramsey could do that. He's, got, he's done it before. You know, I think he's got the potential. But I mean more when you look at other teams... You know, if you look at, I don't know, let's say Man United, like they would have Pogba, you'd think he might get you 10, and Herrera even might get you 10 goals. You know, City, you've got your Silvers, your De Bruyne's. There's a few players who contribute in that way. And Arsenal, it's sort of, from central midfield, it's Ramsey or Bust if you're looking for a goal. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, it should be a concern then. I think, is that what we're agreeing? Yeah, I think you can add that to the list. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, have you got one? Yeah, go on. Uh, Ross Creed at the Mighty Frouche says, uh, does Andrew have an emergency supply of ham on ruffles to keep him going during Ophelia? Sadly not. 
Sadly not. <laughs> I did have some uh, ham on ruffles last week when my daughter came home from Spain, but uh, yeah, no, they're all gone now, so I've got no, no ham on ruffles at all. Um, have you got any kind of supply kit if it comes to it? You know, we were only talking about that. Should we get some candles? What if the electricity goes out? I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what the fuck to expect, given that, you know, in my lifetime, there's never been a hurricane in Ireland. Um, sure. So I, I really don't quite know what to expect at all. Um, I mean, we've got food in the fridge, uh, the brand new fridge that I had to get. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, it was annoying. Um <laughs> Especially given that we went up, uh, I told, I think I put it on the blog, but um, yeah, I was trying to uh, defrost the freezer bit. Oh yeah, and I, I, I hit it with a knife and and uh, and uh, you know cut a hole in. You the killed coolant. your fridge. I killed the fridge, and uh, we were up in the 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 hardware place to uh, to get a new fridge, and sort of mentioned it to the guy that that's how it happened. And he went, yeah. You'd be surprised how many men do that. Um, really? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, there's food in the fridge and we've got, you know, we've got water and stuff like that. But we have a, on the back of the house, we have a, a, a sort of an extension which uh, which was poorly constructed. Uh, I think it would be fair to say the builders were absolute uh, cowboys. And uh, I'm a bit afraid that, it might not it might not cope with the uh, with the the storm winds if they if they reach real storm force i'm a bit mm. afraid that the roof is going to come off that thing and end up well who knows where it'll end up um so if you're listening anywhere in the uh, kimmage area of dublin uh, stay indoors cuz my roof could be coming to to break your house sorry about that crikey crikey indeed um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, look, sad about the fridge, but I'm sure you, you know, buried it in the garden, had a little service for it. No, they took it Said away. Well. They took it away. They the took main, it away. Yeah, they took it away. I was like, no, no. Don't have that big of a garden anyway, so not not, not big enough to sort of bury a, a fridge in, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Right, I, I think that's, I don't know what else we can say. Um, I think that's a lot, isn't it? You know, we'll end on a sombre note of the passing of a fridge. Yeah. Good luck in the hurricane, though. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate that. I'll keep you up to date. Uh, um, unless, of course, the, you know, the <laughs> if roof... If you can, yeah. if, the, if the roof lands on me, then, you know, we may, we may have to uh, reconsider. We do have a game this week as well, Europa League. Um, and I'm just noticing here a story that uh, Arsene Wenger could be in trouble. Did you see this? No. What's okay. he done? He has. He's had words with uh, Neil Swarbrick, who was the referee. Uh, James Ollie in the Evening uh, Standard reporting that he could face a disciplinary charge. He confronted the referee in the tunnel. After the 2-1 defeat to Watford, he was left incensed by the decision to award the penalty. Um... He's obviously got a bit of uh, previous here. Uh, his uh, Anthony Taylor indiscretion last year. I mean, not that any of us would have any uh, problem with Anthony Taylor getting a bit, but, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's a bit of a deflection, this one, Arsene. I can understand him being unhappy at the penalty, but, you know, it wasn't that obvious a dive until you saw a replay, was it? Well, exactly that. Exactly that. I, I, you know, in the moment, I wasn't sure. I was just the replay, I was sure. <laughs> but yeah. he wasn't afforded that luxury. Well, maybe Arsene Wenger will get a ban and it'll be all Steve Bold. See what Steve Bold. You know what? Maybe if he's he gets the man. a ban. Maybe he's the man. Get Jens Lehmann in charge. 
get Jens on the sideline yes. for just a couple of games and see what the fuck happens. Jens Lehman wouldn't put up with these fuckers. I hope. Throttle them. Yeah, he would. That's what they need. A bit more throttling from a German. <laughs> so, yeah, let's see. Maybe it could be a blessing in disguise. Um, well, look, we will have a podcast on Friday at some point, but it will be post-Europa League, so it'll be... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it should be. It's an away game, isn't it? So we've got uh, 6 o'clock kickoff on Thursday. Red Star Belgrade. Let's see what we can do there. Indeed. Let's oh. see. Can't, can't wait. All right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm not crying, I promise. <laughs> All right, well, look, uh, I will, uh, I'll keep you up to date with the hurricane movements. Uh, thank you, as ever, for listening. Thank you for uh, sticking with us. We know it's not easy. We've been uh, living this, too. So hopefully we've... Um, uh, w- would you say we've brightened up anybody's day? I doubt we have. No, no. But we've, we've been there in their day, and that's something. That is something. That is something. <laughs> I, yeah. It's Maybe. not nothing. Are we making are we making it worse? Maybe we have to consider so. our physicians. I think they've all stopped listening. I think that yeah. <laughs> they just want to change. Something fresh, you know. <laughs> something, something different. Yeah. Maybe we'll just Let do Let Steve uh, Bold present the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or we could just do the podcast in completely different accents next week. If you if you so. had to do uh the podcast in a uh in a different accent, what would it be? That'd be my pirate Irish accent, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The only one I can do. <laughs> that is your only accent, uh, yeah. Exactly. All right. Okay. Um, well, we'll consider well, look, that. We tried, guys. Yeah. We did our best. We really tried. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.